Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth. Consistently, I'm your host, David Schreiner-Khan. Something that anyone can do really quickly that will have pretty substantial results. And that's from the chapter on piggybacking. So the idea is that you want to build a very tight-knit, as I call it, secret society of people you can call up any time and get them or email and get them to sort of work the levers of power for you. And so what I do is I have a two-part thing and social media is really good for that. I build a list of all the people who I think would be really important to have in my, dare I say it, network, you know, people who could really help me in some way now or in the future. I would add as many of them as possible to whatever social media platform is your favorite. And then instead of sort of monitor them and see if you have any interests in common. So instead of waiting for that, and here's where it does help to be curious and to have wide interests, but instead of sort of hammering them for their business advice or telling them you want to pick your brain, if there's a sports team you both like, if there's an area you both grew up in and they mention it, if there's a band you have in common, talk about that. Deal with them as a human being. And once you've built that relationship, actually do something that David here is is really good at, whether he knows it or not. I don't know if he's doing it for this reason. But if you can create a piece of digital media like a podcast or, or something like that and use that to attract those people, invite them on to have a conversation on your podcast, on your show, on your video channel, on whatever, then you're dealing with them as two human beings. And then what I do is I create a grid where I actually track the numbers of favors and introductions I do every week. I always make sure I do between two and five introductions because over time, if you do that combination of attracting people as human beings into your network, having a deep conversation with them and then becoming the person they're always happy to hear from when you call because you've done so much for them, you'll have that tight knit secret society. And that goes a really long way. Today on episode 554 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with the author of the Hype Handbook, Michael F. Shine. I'm going to ask Michael how we can learn to use the techniques he researched for his new book, The Hype Handbook, for legitimate constructive business purposes and much more. You can find out more about Michael along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Are you building your own business after a long career as an employed professional? Listen to our show, Going Solo, also found on our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Michael F. Shine. Mike is the founder and president of Microframe Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. He's also the author of The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, published by McGraw-Hill, that will appear where books are sold on January 12, 2021. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I am, as always, absolutely thrilled to be here. I always have so much fun during our conversations. As do I. Um, So, Mike, you and I have been friends for a long time, and it's always great. Mm -hmm. Welcome you back to Smashing the Plateau. You also have one of the most insatiably curious appetites for all kinds of subjects of anybody I know. And I'm always fascinated by what you're curious about. Why did you write Hype? Well, well, first of all, um, thank you. That's one of the best compliments I've gotten in a while. I mean, I, I think someone calling you curious is is really the highest praise. So thank you. I don't hear that a lot. 
Yeah. And I'm really serious. I'm really serious. And I really pride myself on that. So thank you. Yeah. You know, um, I, I guess the reason that I, I chose to write the hype handbook, I just really like long um, subtitles. That's the main reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, in a lot of ways, it's sort of an accumulation of a lot of the things I've been curious about over my life and that have kind of come out of my professional life. So I, um, from a young age, was always interested in art, for lack of a better word, that sort of had a mischievous edge to it. So, I mean, I never wanted to be in business, and I say that a lot. But also, I always used to say I wanted to be a writer, and that was true. And then later, I wanted to play in bands and things like that. But I was always, unlike a lot of artistic people that I know who are really into sort of the purity of their art, like this idea that if they focus on their craft, good things will, will come and, and it'll get known. And if it doesn't, that's the fault of, of the Philistines who, you know, who um, don't understand it. I've always been really interested, and I don't know if I could articulate this until recently, but in, in art that had an element of self-promotion you know, to it. So like, I remember when the Blair Witch Project came out when I was in high school, I thought if you remember anything about that. I remember it well. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole idea was that when I was in high school, the internet was brand new. And I think it was either high school or early college. And there were, people didn't really know. People were kind of like, there's this thing that these kids went out and got lost in the force. And, and, and there's evidence that there might've been an actual witch. And people say, there's no such thing as witches, but they're like, no, no, it's true. You know? And, and it was, it, there was like this mystery to it and it was so exciting. And then I saw the movie and I didn't actually love the movie, you know, but to me, the hype that they built up around it and how it was completely indistinguishable from the artwork was like really cool. Like to me, it wasn't like, oh, that's a great ad campaign. Like that was really an interesting, cool thing. And as I got older and I got more into music, I really always liked like David Bowie, who he didn't go out there in blue jeans and strum his guitar. He was, he would be other characters. And before he was famous, he would have a limo pull up, like to show that he was the biggest rock star in the world when he wasn't, or like the Sex Pistols, who their manager was a self-proclaimed kind of, you know, charlatan, but he would say, I'm a charlatan because I'm putting together a band who can't really play and fooling the world. And they really could play. And it was all so I was always interested in that kind of stuff. And then when I um kind of got older and one thing led to another, and this is a whole other story that I've told many times before, so I won't dwell on it now, but I eventually started, you know, I became a freelance, you know, writer, but but a copywriter, a content writer, I guess they call it. And then I started a marketing agency. I was always just really interested that all these people were talking about sort of the tactics and the minutia, like Instagram marketing or blogging or even podcasting, which I'm a big proponent of, actually. But at the same time, it's a tool. But what they weren't ever talking about were these sort of fundamental principles of mass psychology. Like if you're no one even really a lot of times people don't even know what marketing is, but it's what it really is, is. How do you get people so excited that they might buy from you? So I said, what is, is it really about marketing or is it about generating a huge amount of emotion from a large number of people to get them to take an action? And what I found out was that's completely amoral. So it's not moral, it's not immoral. It's just 
human beings react in groups the way human beings react in groups. And a lot of times really, really nefarious, bad people do it. And a lot of times really good people do it. And so I just said, what if I could dissect that? What if I could write reverse engineer? How do you get large emotional reactions from crowds not tied to any platform or technology or whatever? And, and, and it sort of evolved out of that, I guess. Yeah. So so is it a technique? So, I mean, it's the hype handbook is the name of the book, if we're talking about the book. And I just define it. Hype is a word that has um, always kind of been considered a negative word. But in hip hop, it's not considered a negative word. There's long been a member of, of, of a hip hop group called the Hype Man, like Flava Flav is the most famous one for Public Enemy. And they were part of the group, but they would get everyone excited and worked up. So I just define the word as, you know, any set of activities that drive a lot of emotion among a group of people to get them to take an action on your behalf. So it's, it's a definition. And then it's like, OK, if, if that's a desirable thing, if you want to drive a lot of emotion to get people to take an action, then this book teaches you I kind of reverse engineered. How do you do that? And, and there's a set bunch of ways to do it. You know, they, they take all kinds of guises, but humans are pretty predictable once you reverse engineer them a little bit. Was it hard to do the reverse engineering? It was hard in the way that any worthwhile endeavor is hard, but it was it was super fun because I I basically read hundreds of biographies of some of the most colorful characters that you've ever encountered, you know, from propaganda artists to tycoons to like Richard Branson and Thomas Edison, cult leaders, you know, and, and I, I would look for the through lines that tied them together. So first of all, it was just kind of intellectually interesting, but also it's just fun to hear these stories, you know, and then I did interviews and things like that. So yeah, it was, it was certainly hard, but it was, um, it, like you said, I'm a curious person and, and it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So did you see a lot in common between people whose reputation most people would think is quite negative with those that we think of as being quite positive? If you dig under the surface details, you know what I mean? Like if you look at the actual stuff that they do, the content that they do, I mean, I, I guess a similarity, a way to think about it is there are all kinds of movies and all kinds of novels, right? But they all use 26 letters in the alphabet they generally use a lot of the same narrative techniques. I mean, if you went into a two hour movie and you went into a movie and it was eight hours long and it um, had no conflict and, you know, things were set up in the beginning and never resolved at the end. I don't care how much your appetite for experimental film is. You would be bored. You would say this isn't a movie. So I, I think the details are very, very different, just the way the Godfather and Home Alone are very different, you know, but the underlying principles are more or less the same. So like, you know, for example, there's a gentleman named, I'm just thinking of a few examples off the top of my head. There's a guy named Wallace Fard who, um, from the thirties, and he started the nation of Islam, which really has nothing to do with traditional Islam. It's, it's, um, a pretty nefarious cult. If you get down into it, a lot of the people who joined up and were introduced to Islam through the nation of Islam, like Malcolm X and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar quickly discovered that it was a, uh, a cult and left it for more traditional income. I mean, they believe that, you know, the white race was engineered by a scientist on a distant planet named Yakub to be a devil, to destroy the black race, you know, very, very weird stuff and a money-making operation and Louis Farrakhan, who's a 
pretty terrible person by all accounts is, is their member. But the guy who started it, Wallace Fard, used this technique called milk before meat because he realized how difficult it would be, especially in the 30s, to get African-Americans to accept this, this strange belief system. And so he would dress really nicely and go into African-American communities and he would sell silk scarves and get them to you know, invite them into his home. And then he, he was good looking and thin and it would come around to his fitness regimen, how he got to be so fit. And he would say, well, I don't eat any pork and I don't drink any alcohol. And they would say, oh, I would try that. And because in, at that time in African-American communities, a lot of pork was eaten and, you know, people drank alcohol it was a poor community, not everywhere, but in a lot of areas, people would lose weight really quickly and have a lot of energy. And then they would say, oh, my God, it's crazy. How did that happen? It's just because they were eating better. But he would say, well, let me tell you about my religion. So the idea is people can't really accept big changes if you're introducing something new. You, you introduce it incrementally. But, but that's been done time and time again. I mean, salespeople use that. It's the foot in the door technique to sell really legitimate products. St. Paul, who most people would consider a force for good in the world, at least Christians would, he used that technique a lot. He, he was the most significant you know, apostle for the new faith that, there, that there's ever been. And he basically wrapped the new Christian ideas in Roman garb so that people understood it. So it's, it's, um, yeah, the underlying principles, it's just our brains are not wired to accept big changes. We reject change. So if you want to introduce a new concept to person and get them to accept it, you have to introduce it in small segments. And that's just amoral. That's just how we digest information. So, so is that one of the main principles? Yeah, that's one of the principles. Yeah. Mm. And what are some of the other ones? One is, you know, I call it make war, not love. So the idea is that people are tribal. In order to really attract attention, you need to pick a fight. And that doesn't mean trolling somebody. That doesn't mean being insulting. But you need to position yourself against an idea or against a concept. It's not enough just to just be, you know, for something. Another concept uh, that I talk about is called piggybacking. So essentially, the idea is that a lot of people who really are successful at driving a lot of attention around themselves are, they make it look like it's, it's grassroots. They make it look like they built that million dollar, I mean, million follower Twitter following by themselves. They make it look like people just kind of spontaneously rose up and filled the crowd to see them. But almost without fail, they are simultaneously they build very strong ties with influential people behind the scenes, kind of a secret society. And that's very doable. So, so that's a principle. One is um, fetishize hard work while mastering effortless doing. So like cult leaders, for example, they get their followers to do a lot of manual labor and work really hard on you know, their behalf because they say it's like important for them to get into heaven or whatever. And we see people like Gary Vaynerchuk doing that. He constantly tells his followers to hustle, hustle, hustle. But the truth of the matter is the main reason for doing that is that if you get people to work really hard for your cause, it's very hard for them to justify breaking away from it. Because why would have they worked so hard for something that's meaningless? You know, it's like cognitive dissonance. So at the same time, you need to, you know, kind of master your own emotional state so that you don't get too agitated and work so hard that you can't critically think. So that puts you in a better emotion, you know, a better, it kind, there's kind of a differential between your ability to control the situation and all the people who have worked themselves into sort of a, a follower state. So there, there, there's all kinds. Wow. 
And what do you hope will happen as a result of publishing this book? I mean, I guess there's two sides to why I did it or a couple of sides. I mean, one is just the pure mischief of doing it. You know, I mean, I've used a lot of these techniques in my own agency. I've used a lot of these techniques to become successful when I was at my lowest sort of finance, when, you know, when I went off to start a business and was having trouble driving attention. And just, I remember I used to read this thing called the anarchist cookbook, which in retrospect is extremely horrible that this guy published it. It basically tells you it was like the sixties radical who published all of these like ways to like be an anarchist, including making bombs and this and that. And we used to trade it around at school, never made any bombs, but I learned later it was used to hurt people. But at the time I really liked the idea of mischief, this kind of like document that had everything you needed to know to be an anarchist. And this is like to be a hype artist. But as an adult, I mean, the real reason and and what I really want to happen is that it bothers me a whole lot on a very deep personal level that a lot of times the people who come most naturally to some of these strategies are the worst people. And it's because they see the world the way it really is rather than how it ought to be. And because they're, they're, they see people often, unfortunately, as pawns, you know, they don't let emotions get in the way. But that doesn't mean that those techniques are inherently negative. It just means that those people who are furthering bad ideas and harmful ideas have an advantage over the rest of us. And I get really frustrated when I see certain, like, say, political leaders spewing a bunch of nonsense but doing it in a way that's very, very skillful and that I know is being framed in an effective way, no matter what anyone has to say about this political figure's talents. And I see it in business. I mean, I see a lot of the greatest small businesses not really struggling to get an audience where a lot of really empty shell businesses, you know, I don't know, coaching programs that basically tell you to read a lot of books. And, you know, you know, there are these like business coaches who have never succeeded in anything except business coaching. And the way they've done that is to drum up a lot of attention around their business coaching. It's kind of this weird feedback loop that doesn't have any meat behind it, right? So I would always see clients of mine in the earliest days saying, who had struggled for years to be as as successful as they could be and doing really, really cool things that could help the world. And they're saying, if only, and they would get frustrated. If only, you know, I knew how to if only people saw how good my stuff is, how come all these hucksters get the attention? So I said, well, what if you could take the best part of what the hucksters did to get the attention and apply it ethically and put attention around your awesome products? So I guess it's just sort of my mission for anyone out there who's really creating a great business, who's creating great art, who's doing a great cause, that they have the same advantages, that they have that that advantage and 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 of being able to drive a lot of attention, but can also do it ethically. Because I've really tried to frame this whole concept as it's very important to me that this isn't about fooling people or lying or deceiving people or harming people. If it were, it's not something I could get behind. It had to be, can these psychological techniques be applied devoid of negative content? Can they be applied ethically? And it turns out they can. So I, that was a very long answer to a short question, but yeah. It is it's what I wanted to hear. Okay. <laughs> Mike, when you've studied people that have used these techniques for purposes that most of us would probably consider with not such great intent, have you seen that they have studied these techniques or 
do they just naturally seem to use them? It's a really good question. And it's one I've thought about a lot. I mean, I think part of it is that very few people, even the worst people, think that they're using something for evil intent. I mean, I I think even Hitler thought he was the hero of his own story. He was leading Germany to a glorious future or or whatever it was. So I think part of it is, is that these people believe in some of the horrible things that they're doing. But I think more to your actual question, I would say the vast majority of, of people don't study it. I think they're natural at it. And I've thought a lot about why that is. And I mean, there are a few people who are exceptions to that, that, that Edward Bernays, who's the father of PR, even though he had the natural ability, he had bookshelves full of psychology books and things. But I think for the most part, a lot of people come to it naturally. I think one of the one, I think it's an adaptive strategy. They've learned how to get by in the world and, and succeed in the world using some of these techniques. I think a lot of it, though, a lot of the people who come to it naturally are what you would who ha- have something that we call antisocial personality disorder. You might think of it as a sociopath or an extreme narcissist. And you might say to yourself, why would I want to emulate a sociopath or an extreme narcissist? And it turns out in the research I've done, the main thing about those people, when they study their their resting heart rates in stressful situations, it doesn't rise. So they're very good at detaching themselves from all of the interpersonal human emotion, you know, human dynamics that most of us deal with. Like most of us, when we say, okay, what's the right move to make here? Like even me, I know all of the things to do to drive attention, drive excitement, but human sort of, you know, but my, not human, anything, my emotions get in the way. So should I really do that? What will people think, et cetera, et cetera. And some of these negative actors, they don't really look at the world that way. They don't care what people think. They look at human beings as chess pieces. So you might say, well, I don't want to look at human beings as chess pieces. Well, what it comes down to is getting control of your emotions. So the way to still be a good person and sort of emulate what makes some of these negative hype artists so good at what they do is to become more proactive and less reactive. So like a lot of times people who are learning how to be better in, in dating, you know, they have these like dating, you know, socialization programs and they used to call it pickup artist programs, although that's very problematic in a lot of ways. But in any case, one thing that is maybe helpful is that when you look at someone that you're attracted to in a bar and you feel all kinds of emotion and think to yourself, oh, I could never go up to them. I'm not going to do it. You have to learn to detach yourself from that emotion, almost think of it as a pebble in your shoe and just do it anyway. And so I think the way to emulate some of this is to engage in some emotional regulation practices. You know, obviously meditation has been something people have touted in recent years. I actually started not too long ago a martial art, which is actually very meditative as well. And so anything you can do to regulate your emotions, I think that's a way to sort of reconstruct for yourself what some of these malodorous types do so naturally, but to do it in a in a healthy way. It's fascinating. Have have you noticed any patterns that are notable between men using these techniques and women using these techniques? It's a good question. I, I should have dug into that more deeply. I will say that it, it, you know, when I was writing this book, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, didn't fall into that mistake that so many of us do where we write, where we gravitate only toward people like us. And, and I'm a, I'm a white male, you know, 
And so I noticed that a lot of the examples I was, um, you know, coming to were white males, partially probably because I'm one and partially because they're more commonly written about. So I said to myself, I'm really going to go out of my way and try to put more women in here and this and that. And I had some, but there were there were fewer. You know, I mean, Amy Semple McPherson is one. She was one of the first celebrity evangelists. Oprah is one. Ayn Rand is one. But there are far fewer. And I don't know if that's just because fewer are written about or if there's something about the male, you know, way of being in the world, whether it's how society has constructed status among men or testosterone. I don't know. I I can't speculate on that. But but it was a lot harder to find examples of women. Fascinating. I can't tell you how intriguing all of this is to me. And um, and I can't wait to see a copy of the book. For anyone who wants to go deeper with anything we've talked about, get a copy of the book or get in touch with you. Where's the best place to go? Well, thank you for that, David. Yeah, my little plug. I mean, you know, the first thing is you can get the book anywhere books are sold. I know bookstores are a little tougher to come by these days, but it's always awesome if you can go to your bookstore or ask your bookstore to to order a copy, um, especially a local bookstore. But Amazon is obviously always the go-to. Um, you know, it's already up there for pre-order. You know, I also have a website, michaelfshine.com, spelled uh, a little funny, S-C-H-E-I-N. So michaelfshine.com. There's, you know, there's my, my agency, which is Microfame Media. So fame like famous. And those are the best places, I suppose. Sounds great. Well, Mike, This has been a really fascinating discussion. I'm so glad that you took the time to come back today and talk about your new book, The Hype Handbook. My guest today has been the president of Microframe Media and author Michael F. Shine. Thank you again, Michael, for joining us. Thanks, David. And I want to say I just love what's happened with the show. You've taken it so far. I'm a big listener and I'm really proud of what's happened with Smashing the Plateau. Thank you so much. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today we learned how to use hype for legitimate constructive business purposes and much more. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues to help them smash the plateau. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.